All right, good morning. Good morning. Merry Christmas to you. Um, if you turn open to the book of Matthew, I'm going to begin with um, saying some words, you, a sentence you've probably never heard come out of somebody's mouth, maybe never again. This will be the fourth sermon in Matthew's genealogy. There it is. Um, you, you know, you usually only get one sermon on a genealogy. Uh, not four. Genealogies, though, were really significant at this time. It, uh, these days, it's pretty good if you know your, your great-grandmother's name. But at that time, uh, careful records were kept of your ancestry. Your genealogy kind of worked as your resume in the world. Especially for the Jews, it's very important to prove that you had a pure lineage. It showed your place in life. For example, uh, if you were going to transfer your property... You know, sell your house or something. You had to show that uh, you, your lineage, so you could keep it in the in the, in the same line. Uh, to um, to get married, you had to prove you're Jewish. Caesar Augustus asked um, that everyone uh, required that everybody register in their hometown of their ancestry, which is why, of course, Joseph and Mary returned to Bethlehem. So when Matthew spends 17 verses. On Jesus' genealogy, and then only eight verses on the birth of Jesus, we should pay attention. He's communicating that there are, only, there are, there are over 2,000 years of significance that goes into his resume. He's also communicating that knowing Jesus' story profoundly uh, impacts our own story. He breaks this genealogy into three parts, and we've already addressed the first two, from Abraham to David, and David to the deportation of the Jews into exile in Babylon. But we're going to look at the third section, looking at the deportation to the birth of Christ. So if you'd read with me verses 12 through 17 of Matthew 1. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eliezer. And Eliezer, the father of Mathan. And Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph. The husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. It's the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray once more. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that this story we read was not made up. It has thousands of years of history, and this history, this story, is intertwined with our own story. But there is no hope and no redemption outside of this story in our own lives. We pray, Father, for those who come in this service in all kinds of different ways and bringing their own story and uh, the good and the bad, that we would be impacted, that we would come away 
with a more glorious view of the gospel and the birth of Jesus, and we'd leave here desiring to sit at his feet and worship and enjoy him this week forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's been a recent surge of interest in these... uh, in, in finding out your own genealogy through these DNA ancestry tests you can take, right? You've probably seen some of the commercials for these. Uh, they try to convince you that your ancestry and family story really matter. Uh, some of the commercials indicate some who've been really inspired by learning their story. For example, there's a, there's a woman who learned that one of her ancestors uh, were, uh, was a tribal leader in Ghana. And she in the commercial says, when I found this out, I found out where my strength comes from. Some get inspired uh, and some learn that their genealogy is very flawed. For example, there's an African-American pastor named Reverend Douglas Banks in one of these commercials. He discovers that he is the fifth great-grandson of Thomas Jefferson from a slave that Jefferson owned. Reverend Banks was later interviewed by the Huffington Post, and he admitted that his resume was stained. He said this, he said, The DNA of both slave and slave master, bound and free, white and black, exists in me, with all of its glory and its shame. If this ancestry of Jesus... um, this ancestry of Jesus that precedes this first Christmas day is severely flawed and stained. If it was in the form of a resume, there would be much to celebrate as well as much to hide. It is a mixture of, of glory and shame. But Matthew doesn't hide this at all, in the least bit. In this last section that we read, in fact, there are several different kinds of people represented. Some who have really failed. Some who feel really forgotten. And some who are really faithful. It's not a bad representation of maybe some of us who come into this service this morning. Everyone comes to Christmas with our own story and our own resume, right? For most of us, this from resume, this in the form of a family tree, um, is very flawed in terms of the lives we live. It's a mixture of both. Uh, Glory and the shame. But just like Matthew's genealogy reveals a great need for God to enter this story, so we have that same need. And so we want to look at just two things this morning from this passage. Number one, why we need for God to enter our story. Why we need it. And two, why it matters that God did enter our story. Okay? So let's begin with why we need for God to enter our story. As I said, there's three different types of people represented. Let's look first at those who have failed. Those who have failed. The story begins in verse 12 with a guy named Jeconiah. He's also known as Jehoiakim in the Old Testament. He became king at the age of 18 after his father, Jehoiakim, passed away. His father was an evil king. He reigned for years. It says that Jehoiakim uh, continued in his evil the evil ways of his father. Jehoiakim was only reigned for three months when King, uh, the king of Babylon, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, came and led all of Israel and God's people into exile. 
which became one of the most shameful events in the history of God's people. His sin and the sin of his fathers caught up with him, and forever would Jehoiakim be known as a failure. Isn't it interesting that Jesus' ancestry includes so many people who failed so miserably? I remember being at a family reunion years ago, and my aunt, um, who's into our family tree, put a big, long piece of paper up on the board, and, oh, up on the wall, and we, we went through our family tree, and I can kind of remember her um, coming to certain success stories and dwelling there and fleshing out the story. But when you come to somebody that is a little bit flawed, you know, that has a stained past, we just kind of zip through them. We tend to do the same when telling our own story to people. Don't we all have parts of our lives that we're just not proud of? Parts of our lives we would like to hide. But Matthew doesn't hide or cover up any of Jesus' story. Those who have failed, who are flawed. In fact, he's actually really intentional to bring, uh, to mention them. For example, he could have just said in verse 3 that Judah was the father of Perez. But instead, he says, by Tamar. Permanently recording for all to read in the first three verses of the New Testament that Jesus came through one who pretended to be a prostitute and tricked her father-in-law to be with her. He could have just said Salmon was the father of Boaz, but instead he includes by Rahab. It was a reminder that a, a pagan harlot was part of this family tree. And what a great reminder here that they need God to enter this story. It's a reminder that we also need God to enter our story. For some of us come to this Christmas story feeling like a failure, feeling like we have their stains in our story. And it could be just because of one maybe major sin or failure in your life, but it could be you know, what we call that besetting sin, a struggle we just can't get over, an addiction we hope nobody finds out about. It could just be because you feel like you're failing as a parent or, or failing at work or just maybe in life in general at this stage of life. And if you feel like you have failed, you can identify how easy it is to kind of want to cover it over, hide this part of your resume, hoping no one finds out about it. And you bring this to Christmas, this baby in the manger with some questions. Does, does this really make a difference? Can he really make me clean again? Is he really enough for those portions of my life? Another type of person who's represented here are those who feel forgotten. If you remember that God's people were in Babylon in exile for 70 years, and then when they return um, to their land, they re- it tells the story of them rebuilding the temple and the walls, but then uh, God went silent. For a little over 400 years between the Old and New Testament, which are known as the silent years, which, are, which is about 150 years longer than the United States has been a country, there are no prophets, no leaders. God seemed to be silent. In verses 13 through 16 of our passage, there are nine men during that time that are mentioned. They're not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. For 2,000 years, God had been revealing Himself, leading them, giving them promises of a future hope with Him. But now, silence. 
On top of that, we know from history that God's people during this time were mostly under the rule and oppression of other governments. After Babylon, there were the Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans. Many of God's people surely thought, these men here thought, God has forgotten us. It's easy to feel forgotten by God when going through hardships. Many of the old in the Old Testament feel this, felt this. In my reading plan uh, at the end of this year, it has me going through the book of Job right now, which I honestly wasn't very happy with. Uh, you know, it's Christmas, right? I mean, uh, yeah, I kind of want to read that at the beginning of the year. But as constant reminder of one going through a difficult time who felt forgotten by God. He mentions it several times. Forgotten by God, his family, and his friends. Several times in the Psalms, recorded in the hymn book of God, David says things like, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? He says, I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And such passages really are a reminder, why do we need God to enter our story? Because some of us come to this Christmas story Maybe not feeling like a failure, but maybe you feel like you, you've been forgotten by God. It might be because of a current trial or difficulty in your life or the life of a loved one. Maybe you're asking the question, you know, when will God show up? Has he really forgotten me? I've talked with several in our church that have gone through infertility and they feel like they're praying so fervently, but God just seems to be silent month after month. Same is true sometimes if you feel like you're growing older as a single person, longing to be married. Maybe because you've got, you're, you're in a hard job that doesn't fit you or in a hard relationship or maybe just feeling dry, spiritually dry or despondent before God. And, and, and when I feel this, I don't know if you're like this, but you, know, you just feel like you pray sometimes because you know you should, but your prayers just kind of go up in the air and just kind of go up in like in a mist, just, just kind of fade away. You wonder, like, did God really hear is God really hearing me? Or is he silent? We've talked to some in our church, unfortunately, that feel forgotten in our church. They've come in and they're seeking community and good friends and fellowship, but unfortunately, um, they feel lonely and overlooked. It's so hard to hear, and it's really something we hope to address in the new year. But for these reasons and others, it's, it's, just, it's just easy to come to Christmas feeling forgotten. And you come to this baby in a manger with different questions. The one's like, how do I know, God, that you really notice me? How do I know that I'm actually valued? Right? There's one last group of people here representing the passage, and it's, it's just those who have been faithful. In the midst of some who have failed and those who feel forgotten, there's some pretty faithful people mentioned. There's Zerubbabel. There in verse 13, he led 42,000 Jews back to the promised land, was involved in build, building an altar and, and uh, the, building the foundation of the, of the temple of God. And then at the end of the genealogy, we have these two famous characters, Joseph and Mary, who were very faithful, as you know. Joseph, in verse 19, is mentioned as a just or righteous man. I mean, how righteous is this? He desired to suffer the shame upon himself instead of Mary. And then later, when the angel of the Lord describes what tells him what's going on, he remains with Mary, even though it would bring months of false accusations and probably a lifetime of being misunderstood. Maybe that's how you come to Christmas, right? You, 
You come, you feel like you've been pretty faithful and you're, you're obeying to the best of your ability. You've got a clean conscience. Praise God for that, right? To those who feel that you've been faithful, though, let me tell you what your struggle might be as you come to Christmas. It's not feeling unworthy because of failure, maybe forgotten, because God's silence. You may, may struggle more with actually seeing your need for this baby to come and enter your story, for God to enter your story. Unfortunately, some don't see their need for Jesus to be born actually because of your faithful obedience, right? While some come to the Christmas story ashamed, suddenly hiding the resume, some come proud, trusting in your resume, in your faithfulness to God. This baby in the manger becomes something, maybe you feel like, that's for my neighbor. My neighbor needs to hear this. More than a reminder of what you yourself need. It's the fallacy of the older brother in the prodigal son story, right? Here he was, unable to notice the glory of his father's love and presence and attention in his life. Why? Actually, because of his faithful work, he says at the end of the story. I've been faithful all these years. It's the fallacy of Martha being so faithful to serve while her sister is sitting in front of Jesus. And Jesus says she's neglecting to do the one thing that's necessary to sit and enjoy Jesus. I think it's really easy to be faithful. Be faithful at school and work and family this time of year with Christmas parties and Christmas gifts and even Christmas outreach and neglect the one thing that is necessary to sit and enjoy Christ. We can even be faithful in our Advent devotional, but the Christmas story just doesn't seem to take root in the midst of our faithfulness in other areas, right? You identify with that? I can. But, you know, as faithful as Mary was, as much as we celebrate that, you know the first thing she admits when she breaks into song there in Luke 1? Remember her song? She just breaks into song. She says this, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. See, she knew. The reality is, is whether you feel like you've really failed God or you feel like you've really been forgotten by God or if you've been faithful, we're all in the same desperate, in the same place, in the same, with the same desperate need for God, our a Savior to enter into this story of ours. So that's why we need it. Well, why does it matter that he did? Why does it matter that God enters our story? You know, most good stories, some of you are, are big readers, some of you love to watch movies. Um, you know, every good story, it has a rising climax where it reveals the problem of the story with this tension of a great problem or an antagonist in it. And it comes to, there comes a point where there's this hopeful expectation, this longing for a hero to enter the story, make things right again. To fix the broken relationship or restore the failure of the people. To just bring peace. You know, most people are looking, most people in the world are looking for a hero to enter their own story like this. This is not a uniquely Christian story. A story of feeling forgotten or feeling like a failure. All people feel these things. And the question is, is what do you do with it? Where do you go with this? Where do you find answers? 
Some people proudly say that there is no hero. I read this week that the freedom of religious foundation in Pittsburgh, the freedom from religion foundation, Pittsburgh hung out a sign that said this, at this season we may reason prevail. There are no gods, no devils, no angels, no heaven or hell. There is only a natural world. Religion is but myth and superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves the mind. For them, there's no hope of a hero in this story. A Hindu-inspired self-realization fellowship temple sitting on the Pacific Coast Highway in California hung out a sign that said, Joy to the world. Yet, they encouraged people to find this hope and joy from within themselves. Self-realization will bring the hope and joy that you need. You yourself are your own hero. The Bible offers a very different story with a different hero who comes to us from the outside. In Matthew, there's the climax of this genealogy. In verse 16, he gives it. He says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, meaning long-awaited Messiah, the hero. This Christmas story is all about the Word who created all flesh. Entering in the story, our story, where we messed it up, becoming flesh. Hope has come from the outside. Hope was born into the world. In verse 17, it reveals something very significant about how this baby would bring this hope. It's pretty hard to get if you're not Jewish and you, don't, you can't pick up on this, but he breaks Matthew... See, Luke was very interested in, in the, the accuracy of the genealogy. Matthew was very interested in the theological significance of it. He breaks the story up into 14 um, names in three different sections of 14 people. He leaves out a lot of names, actually, because of this. He, all commentators agree this, his purpose was the, giving a theological significant truth. See, the number seven was very significant in the Bible. It means completion or fulfillment of something. And so when Matthew gives these two sets of seven and comes to the seventh seven, this baby called the Christ, he's saying, Jesus, this one, this baby, is the fulfillment and completion of all of God's past and future promises. So this is what it means. It means Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. To gather people from all races and nations to bless them and be their God forevermore. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to David to be the righteous king who establishes an everlasting kingdom of peace and justice where everything's made right again. Matthew is setting up the rest of the New Testament. He's saying, Look, God has entered the story, the heroes come. And what great significance this has in our lives. It means for those who have failed. For those who have failed, it means this, that Jesus is a greater Abraham who gathers you in to bless you. How? Jesus is the fulfillment and the completion of your righteousness. You remember in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but rather to what? To fulfill the law. He's saying this, look, 
I never fail. Jesus would never fail so that when he died and rose again, he could decisively declare for all who trust in him, your failure's forgiven. I fulfilled all the righteous requirements in your, of the law in your life. Your resume is marked complete before God. And here's some application of that truth. Number one, look, we, it means we can stop hiding. We can actually let people really get to know us. In all the parts of our story, they're good and the bad. I, I love in small group situations to break our lives into groups of three. Like, what's the most significant thing that's happened in the first, second, third part of your, of your life? And we've done this in the past. I, I'll admit, it's just hard to... If you've got some of those areas where you feel like you failed, you just kind of you kind of cover it over. But the more we understand that we are not defined by what we have done or not done, but what Jesus has done for us, the more we're free to just let people get to know us. And so as you gather with family and friends this week, I would encourage you. There are things that people just don't know about you, especially those areas that have been really hard and you'd rather cover over or hide. Look, you're complete in Christ. Let them know you. Let people know you. It means, number two, that you can move towards people that have hurt you. No doubt getting together with family is a mixture of happiness and hostility. Sometimes, and the more that you get a heart level, at a heart level, that God has moved towards you in your failure in order to forgive, the more we should feel a sense of calling and empowerment to move towards those people who have hurt us. And forgive them. Lastly, one last application. It means that just as Jesus' ancestry was not hindered by those who failed, God's purposes in your life, if you feel like you failed, they're not hindered by your sin or failure. In fact, God works so powerfully in the midst of them. So we ask His forgiveness and seek to repent. There's no barrier to his working great purposes in your life through, oftentimes, through our failure. Well, what about those who feel forgotten? If you identify with feeling forgotten, it means this, that Jesus is the greater David, the sovereign king who remembers you. Throughout the Old Testament, there's these promises, like in Isaiah 44, he says, God says, oh Israel, I formed you. I will not be... You will not be forgotten by me. In Isaiah 49, I love this. What a great illustration. Can a woman forget her nursing child? This is God speaking to his children. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Look, a lot of us have, have, have uh, born, I was going to say born children, but actually only the women have done that. But anyway, been involved in that process in some degree. Um, can you imagine... Carrying a child for nine months. And then going to the hospital and birthing this child. And then leaving the hospital and getting home and being like, I seem like I forgot something. And I just can't put my finger on it. Right? I mean, it's an impossibility. It just does not happen. And yet God comes and says, even that would be more likely, if you are God's child, than Him forgetting ever forgetting you. That's what he says. Jesus, he came and lived a life of noticing people, especially those in society that feel forgotten. The, Jesus, from the sick to the blind to the lame to the lepers, you know what he did? He constantly says he saw them and 
all compassion for them and then move towards them. In Luke 12, he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you're more valuable than many sparrows. Have you ever had lice? Or your children had lice? And even the, I see a couple of you, like even the thought of it, you start kind of itching your head a little bit. Our children got it one time. And you have to comb through every little part of their hair multiple times a day. It is painful. It is why some companies get paid like $10,000 to do it for you. Because at the end of it, you really feel like, I feel like I could tell you how many hairs of head my daughter has on her head. Because it is so hard. Why would God count the number of hairs on our head? Why would he tell us this? He's using a comparison. Because look, if you, if you pulled out a hair of your head and dropped it on the floor... It's not like the cleaning lady's going to beeline for it and be like, oh my goodness. You know, it's insignificant. It's just a hair. And he's making a comparison. As insignificant as this little hair is on your, one hair of hair on your head, how much more valuable are you than this hair on your head? As insignificant as just a sparrow is, yet even them are not forgotten. They're valuable. How much more valuable are you created in his image? Redeemed by the blood of his son, Jesus. Let me give a few applications of this. Number one, God's love and attention towards us will not be, is not hindered by his silence, especially in times of suffering. You may have heard of a man named William Cooper. He lived in the 1700s. He experienced a really hard life, the death of his mother at age six. Um, he was bullied in school, severe depression much of his life. God entered his life when he was put into an asylum as he went crazy and almost committed suicide. He still suffered with depression most of his life, but then later he wrote a hymn, familiar to some of us, um, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. In that hymn he wrote this, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Now listen to this, one who suffered like a man like this, writing this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. For behind a frowning providence, He hides His smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may leave a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Assurance that in God's silence, we are not forgotten. Number two, though, God calls us to notice those who do feel forgotten. In most gatherings of any size of people, in this room, and and probably when you go to be with family and friends this week, there are some who really long, who want more than anything in life for somebody to really notice them. Not just say hi or talk about the weather or sports, but to really notice them at a deep level. And this... As ones who have been so valued and noticed by God, we're sent out to move towards people, see them and feel compassion for them and move into their life and notice people in the same way. And so whether you feel like you've failed, or one who, who feels like you've been forgotten, or the faithful one, 
God has entered our story through this birth of His Son, Jesus. Better Abraham, better King David. And if you believe this, this is your new resume. It's stamped with the sign, forgiven and free, noticed and loved. You know, I love watching Christmas stories this time of year. I'll even admit that I love... um, the cheesy Hallmark ones, you know what I'm talking about? Like the very predictable ones that uh, begin with the, you know, guy meets girl, they, you know, twinkle in the eye, half somewhere in the story there's conflict, doesn't look like it's going to work out. It does, they kiss at the end, you smile, you're way just happy. I mean, it's just foolproof. Um, I probably will regret talking about that. But, uh, but there's a really great one that came out last year that we went and saw. It's named The Star. You seen that movie? Um, it's an animated film about a donkey. We showed it a few weeks ago to some of our children here at the church. It begins with a donkey going around in circles, pulling a wooden yoke, probably grinding something. He longs to do something significant in his life, to build his resume. And there's a caravan, a royal caravan that comes by every now and then. And through the slats in the wood, he looks out and he can see, you know, the royal procession he says that's where i want to do i want to be in that procession that will make my life feel meaningful then i can be happy and now close your ears if you're saying i want to see this movie and i don't want to hear the ending because i'm about spoiler alert right okay you already so he breaks out ends up escaping and he meets a pregnant teenager named mary mary needs help from this donkey getting to a little town traveling to a little town called Bethlehem. And he helps her. And here's what I love about this story, at the, ending, at the end of this story. Because it would have been so easy for the writers to put the emphasis upon this donkey getting his significance internally from having the opportunity of, of carrying the mother of this new King Jesus. But you know, it doesn't really do that. It mentions it really quickly, but it doesn't really leave you with that. At the end of the story, you have, here's what happens. You have these dogs that have been chasing them down trying to get this baby the whole time. These dogs kind of label, they are the failures of the story, the bad guys. And they come humbly with their heads bowed into the, store, into the stable, asking if they can be a part. And then you see in the background shepherds who were forgotten in that society. They come in, having seen the star, heard the angels. And so they're gathered together with them. And then you have the faithful wise men, which I know is chronologically out of order. (laughs) So you have those who have failed and those who feel forgotten and those who are faithful all in the room together. And as old holy night is sung in the background, all these together bow down and worship the new baby king. What a perfect, you come away with a sense that, man, their significance is not found in their resume. It's like the resume doesn't even matter anymore. Good, bad, it just doesn't even matter. One thing matters to them. This king has come to change their lives. This king is the, is the completion and fulfillment the meaning of their lives. There's only one thing necessary at that point, and it's to bow down and worship this king. And they do that together. 
Christmas is a reminder that we, have all, we all have that same need for this baby Savior to enter our story. The only one who gathers to bless those who have failed. The only one who remembers the forgotten. And so let's do leave here doing the one thing necessary. Sitting in, at the feet of Jesus and enjoying Him this week. Amen. Let's, let's pray. A gracious heavenly Father, bless you, praise you. You did not have to enter this story. You could have left us in our failure. And we would have been punished for it. But you did. And you suffered the consequences on, at the, on the cross. Where Jesus died. And I pray, Father, this would be a worshipful week for all who feel like they failed, any of those who feel forgotten, I pray our eyes would be off of ourselves, full of worship and ready to go and notice others and forgive others as you have done so with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.